All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of Gotham Writers Inside Writing. Today, we're talking about my favorite, uh, middle grade. Uh, but before we get to the subject of the day, a couple of quick reminders. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, they are all recorded and posted on our YouTube channel, uh, as well as on the Inside Writing podcast. Also, at any point in the show, even right this moment, you can start submitting uh, your questions for the Q&A portion of the episode later on. Uh, there's a, a conveniently labeled Q&A button on your Zoom dashboard where you can submit those questions. I'll pick a few and pose them to our panelists. Lastly, stay tuned at the very end of the show for instructions on how you can participate in the Twitter pitch party. And without further ado, let's talk about middle grade. I want to start with a quote like we always do. This one from Dr. Seuss who said, I like nonsense. It wakes up the brain cells. Fantasy is a necessary ingredient in living. It's a way of looking at life through the wrong end of a telescope, which is what I do. And that enables you to laugh at life's realities. Now, let's meet our panelists. First off, the author of numerous middle grade books, including the Secrets of the Pied Piper series and the new middle grade graphic novel, Zatanna and the House of Secrets, Matthew Cody. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Hey, there you are. And our second panelist, vice president and literary agent at Distal, Godrich, and Barrett, Jim McCarthy. Jim, hello. There he is. Hi, Jim. All right, so we're going to start the questioning the way we always do with a basic definition of what it is we're talking about. So, Jim, what is middle grade? Jim, you're on mute right now. There we go. There you go. Better? Okay. Sorry about that. All right. Um, I would say middle grade is fiction for, or fiction or nonfiction for readers aged eight to 12. And uh, when you're talking about fiction, that means characters probably between 10 and 14 um, is, the, is the quickest version. Gotcha. Matthew, anything you want to add to that? Pretty succinct. No, I think that's, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. All right. All right, so one thing I, Matthew, this first question is going to be for you. One thing I always find so fascinating about writing for children is finding the right voice for it, coming across authentic. So how do you do that? Um, I think that that's actually something that a lot of people, like when I've taught my classes at, at Gotham, that's one of the things we discuss. And one of the things that I always, always try to drive home is I don't think it's as hard as people think it is um, because everybody has been a child. Right. So I think that, you know, it's a little bit of just sort of remembering what it was like to be a child. Um, but I think that the elements of story are going to be the same. You telling a good story for an adult is the same as telling a good story for a child. Um, you just want to think about a few things, I think. Uh, I think that when you're writing for kids, you just keep in mind a sense of wonder that wonder of childhood, it's, it's, it's a nice thing to capture. And also, things mean a lot more when you're a child. The stakes are always bigger, you know? So what seems mundane to an adult could be life and death to a kid, which actually makes writing for kids a little easier because you can really invest in those really life and death stakes, even though it's sort of on a smaller scale. So, Jim, as someone who gets a ton of queries from middle grade, what are some of the common pitfalls you see where writers fail to achieve that level of authenticity? I think 
the most frequent problem is when people sort of write down to their audience, when they're, they're taking a, a, a voice that feels very overly reliant on explanations and, and education. It, it, I think if something feels like it's being taught to you, it loses, it loses that wonder that Matt is talking about, that, that, that sense of joy goes away the minute you tell someone that something is supposed to be educational or supposed to be fulfilling. Uh, so that's probably the number one problem. Um, and then there are other, I mean, the smaller problems are people getting word count very wrong um, in terms of how long books should be or, or not really understanding the difference between middle grade and chapter book or middle grade and YA. The lines are blurry and, and sometimes people uh, get a little stuck on them. So since you brought it up, uh, if you just don't mind elaborating real quick, word count and what the difference is between chapter book, middle grade, and YA. Sure, I think chapter books are uh, for younger readers, really, really just readers starting to be able to read on their own. Um, middle grade is a more independent read. Younger middle grade is sort of that that eight or nine year old reader who can handle a lengthier story but still needs it relatively simple uh, and when you get to upper middle grade you're looking probably at 30 to 50,000 words on average uh, sometimes they can be longer especially if it's fantasy but but that's probably the most comfortable range to stay within mm-hmm. so I want to get on the subject of theme since theme is so big in all of children's literature middle grade being no exception uh, Jim, we'll start with you. Just in general, how important is theme to any given middle grade book? I don't know. It's probably less important to me than than voice and character development. I, you know, I want a book that says something and is is really, uh, you know, aspires to have a message. But but that's not that's not what I find myself looking for first. So how do you think you would rank the priorities of what you're looking for with, with theme, voice, character? If you had to pick your top three things that you look for in a middle grade, what are they? I would, I would say voice first, character second, and, and plot third. Um, I, I, you know, I want something that, that really moves along, that has a story to tell. Theme is, is it's not incidental, but it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not top three for me. Mm-hmm. And, and Matthew, as terms of priority, when you're writing a story, what would you say your, your top three focuses are if you had to pick three story elements? Um, probably very similar to what Jim's looking for when he's acquiring it. Um, I definitely theme. I don't, I don't start with theme. Like, I don't chase theme. I really think that you discover theme. Um, sometimes you'll sit down and say, I want to write a book about X, right? Like, you know, I, my first book, Powerless, I did want to write about... Um, children losing things like loss in childhood. And so that book dealt with um, grief, death, but also a lot of fantasy elements and superpowers and stuff like that. So I did sit down with that idea in mind. So I guess you could say in that idea, in that instance, I was some way starting with theme, but a lot of the more meteor themes kind of developed as I, as I wrote it. And um, the one consistent, I think through all of my projects is starting with character. Um, an idea of a of a, a person in a situation, and how that situation is um, 
going to affect your life, going to change your life. And so that's usually where I begin. And I ask myself, you know, why am I writing a story about this character on this particular day? Is this the best day of their life or the worst day of their life? And if it isn't, why am I choosing this day? Why am I choosing, why am I not choosing that day? Right. And that doesn't mean like it's the day that somebody, you know, found out they have a horrible disease or something. It can be, um, the day somebody's date canceled on them in the prom. But in that moment, they feel that that is the worst thing that could possibly happen, right? So I usually go at it from character in that way and choose a situation. And then from that situation develops plot. Um, and so that's really how I get into it. Voice, I think, is something that's a little less tangible when you're in the writer's chair. Um, voice encompasses so many aspects of writing and there's, there's long-term voice and then there's particular voice to each particular book. So for me, it really is character, situation, plot. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so Jim, with there being, you know, there's only so many things you can write about for children specifically. Uh, we see a lot of stories about bullying, finding identity, the parental disconnect, that kind of stuff. How do writers keep it fresh when they're revisiting these similar things that we've seen in so many other books before? Oh, I wish I had a more specific answer to that question. <laughs> it's, it's hard because in a lot of ways you don't know it until you see it. And, and, and the sort of very sweet answer is every story has been told, but, but you haven't told it until you've done it yourself. So theoretically every writer is bringing their own perspective. So that is where uh, freshness comes in. Um, more realistically on top of that. I want someone to have done a lot of research into what else is out there, have read the competition, know what stories have been told, and know that they are identifying their own uh, freshest element, whether it's, whether it is a new voice, whether it's a new perspective. You know, some books come along and they feel like nothing that's ever been written before. Um, I think of uh, Aida Salazar's uh, verse novel for middle grade, Moon Within, um, which is a middle grade novel about a young Latinx girl uh, who is, has her first period. And, and it's really about this sort of gorgeous verse novel about menstruation and coming of age and how all of it ties together. And it, it's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. That's not... I, 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 it comes to mind because it's not like any other book. Most are more familiar, more uh, comparable to titles we've already seen. So um, it's, you know, it, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's, it's up to the writer to find what about their telling is most important to them and why they're writing it because why you're writing it, if you're addressing something very personal to you, if you're writing about characters who remind you very much of yourself, if you are addressing a need in the marketplace, whatever that is, whatever question you're trying to answer is probably what's going to be freshest about the book. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Matthew, in that regard, do you ever find it limiting writing to a younger audience? Um, uh, yeah, I think I'd be lying if I said no, um, because there are certain things you just cannot write about for a younger audience. So therefore the, by the, by definition, it is limiting, right? There are stories that 
you may want to tell that are just not appropriate for children. And I'm not a big, I mean, I think kids are very good at self-censoring themselves and self-selecting what they're ready for. Um, my kid is a voracious reader and reads everything from, he's 12 and he reads everything from chapter books to, you know, certain adult books. And he has a really good handle on what is appropriate for him. But I do think that you, just by the nature of your audience, have to determine a little bit of what is right and what, you know, what they can handle. Um, so it's limiting in that way. It's not limiting in terms of I want to tell big stories or I want to tell gripping stories or I want to tell powerful stories, whatever. All those kinds of stories you can still, you know, it's limiting, I suppose, in the detail, but not in the, in the storytelling. I don't think it's limiting in the language. I know some people have the perception that, oh, I'm writing for kids, I'd better dumb it down. And I think that's no, 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 no. Like kids, you know, they don't own a dictionary, but they own a phone. So they can look up those words, right? Um, so I don't think it's limiting in any of those ways. Some content, yes, but storytelling, no. Gotcha. And, and Matthew, talking about subject story matters, I, I feel like the good old-fashioned adventure story in middle grade will never get old. Do you agree with that? I just think the good old-fashioned adventure story will never get old, period. Like, I think we like good old-fashioned adventure stories. Um, kids in particular, but if you look at, you know, there are several adult genres that it's all about that, all about the adventure. Um, and kids like to see themselves with agency. And a great way for kids to see themselves with agency is to see a kid on an adventure. You know, it's a really great way of externalizing a lot of the internal stuff you're going to be dealing with um, by putting them on this journey, this adventure. So yeah, I think it is, it's always going to be, you know, very fertile ground for middle grade, I think. And Jim, following up with that, you already kind of mentioned how theme wasn't that high on your, on your list of what you're looking for in middle grade, but assuming you did just get a very surface value adventure story and there really wasn't a theme in there, is that still something that's marketable to the middle grade audience? It's, it's possible, certainly. I mean, if you look at the Rick Riordan Presents line, he uh, has teamed up with Disney to put out this series of, of adventure novels from different authors from different backgrounds that are all uh, exceptional. They're incredible. It's one of the best curated lists in middle grade um, or in publishing, really. Um, but they're all they're all incredibly different. But they are tied together by the fact that they are they're you know one or two one or two children on an, a big adventure. There is a a similar thread tying through all of them. I think. You know, I need to see something that's new in every book that I take on. Uh, just what's new doesn't necessarily have to be huge. It could be tone. Maybe it is theme. Maybe that's what sets apart something that otherwise is very good, but a little bit familiar. Then maybe the theme sort of takes it into new territory for me. Um, it just, just one element needs to feel different from what, else, what the other things I'm seeing in my inbox. Mm -hmm. Matthew, turning that around from the writing perspective, I know you don't write with theme in mind either, but say you write this great adventure story and you go back and look at it and there really isn't a theme there. Do you bother digging one up or do you just leave it as it is as a great adventure story or great story period? That's a great question. I think if I were to sit back and finish something and look at the story and not be able to discover a theme, I would worry. <laughs> I think that would be a little bit of a break the glass moment because... I do think the value of theme 
And the reason that I see it as something discoverable is because at, in the end, a, a, a great theme will tie all the sort of disparate elements of your story together, right? So if it's an adventure story, and if you discover, you sit and oh, I think I'm writing about friendship, and then what you actually discover is that you're, you're writing about loss or the loss of friendship or growing apart or something like that. Once that is discovered in your story, going back and weaving it in and looking for moments where you can pull it and make it stronger and find threads that you maybe even subconsciously put there and pull it out, it brings it all together. And I think uh, makes the story hang together very nicely. So if you don't have that in the end, I would be concerned in something like an adventure story that it's just a series of events, right? Um, where characters are doing things, but don't, they don't have any greater meaning in the end of the day. So, you know, I don't want to discount theme. I think it is really important in the end. It's just not something that I go in looking, go in with an idea generally in mind. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's leave theme behind for now. Uh, we'll talk about a sense of humor in middle grade. I want to revisit that Dr. Seuss quote. Uh, he mentions being able to laugh at life's realities. So generally, Jim, do you, do you think middle grade is meant to be funny? Is, is, there a such, is there a market out there for middle grades that don't have a sense of humor? Um, I love funny middle grade, uh, and I'm always on the lookout for it. I think a, a, a voice that has a very natural sense of humor is one of the most appealing things to find. That said, I, I love to push the boundaries of what genres can be. I, uh, I have authors who write incredibly emotional, sad, tragic middle grade, and you know, there might be humor in there, but it's certainly not what, what is being led with. I think about my client, Nicole Melaby, whose first book, Hurricane Season, is about a 12-year-old girl whose father is bipolar, and uh, she starts struggling with depression. And it's these two mentally ill members of, they're the only family that the other has. And the book is about how they sort of learn to, to cope and transition and deal with these very weighty topics. Um, it's not funny, it's not a funny book. Uh, there is a lightness to the touch, there is a sincerity and a hopefulness. Um, I would say you can't have middle grade without hope, um, but you can have it without humor, if that's a fair way to think of it. Um, but I love, I love seeing how serious we can get while still maintaining interest from children and being appropriate uh, for them. Mm -hmm. oh, that makes sense. Uh, Matthew, with your writing process, how do you establish a good sense of humor? Because you do write with a good sense of humor in your books. Yeah, I think one of my favorite, so I don't, <clears throat> there's a few books that I have, or there's like a uh, graphic novel that will be coming out in the fall that is very much, this is a book to make you laugh. It's called Cat Ninja. It's about a cat who is a ninja. There you go, right? So, and, and, and that, that is, I'm always looking for the joke in there. I'm looking for the humorous situation. You know, I'm looking for the characters that if you put them together will make you laugh. But putting a book like that aside where the goal is, you know, this is a humorous book. I just think it's in everything that I write because it's something that I respond to in stories in general. Like, um, uh, one of my favorite adult novelist is David Mitchell, um, Cloud Atlas, and, and he, uh, one of his, he, 
in one interview he was discussing and they asked him about humor and he said, it's the salt that flavors our fiction. And I thought that was really great because depending on how you're cooking, you're going to add a certain amount of salt. You're going to taste it as you go. You may overdo it. You may not have enough, but it, if you do it correctly, it brings all the flavors out and makes them stronger. And so I think that, you know, if you have a really heavy topic and if you're dealing with really serious issues, a little well-placed humor makes the tragedy deeper, that kind of stuff. So um, I look for the moments where I can have humor in all of my stories, but I, I don't make that my goal. I just make sure that it's, you know, one other flavor in the, in the book. And are you the, the end judge of whether what you've written is funny? Do you, do you ever? Yeah, man, it? I'm hilarious. Of course. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. I, yeah, if it makes me laugh, then I figure it'll make a kid laugh. <laughs> and it may be wrong. You know, I mean, it, it's very possible that like, there's an element of like kids who read Matthew Cody middle grade, like, wow, he's so serious, man. And they've never gotten a joke I've ever put in a book. So that's possible. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I do think also there are some writers that I meet, especially like, you know, um, writers just starting out are like, oh, I'm not funny. I'm not funny. So I'm not going to work. No, you can be funny. Everybody can be funny. And if you have time, if you're working on a book for like a year, you have time to come up with a couple of jokes, <laughs> you know, like you can put the humor in there and it's actually something you can do with craft as well. Doesn't, you don't have to be the, the person who's naturally funny in a crowded room to put humor into your stories. Um, that being said, I have editors, I have an agent who sometimes come back and say, yeah, that joke didn't land, <laughs> you know? And so they'll help me edit on the way as well. I'm thinking um, my client, Remy Lai, won the the Golden Kite Award this year for uh, for humor. And her novel, Pie in the Sky, is about this young, um, young Asian boy immigrating to Australia in the wake of his father's death. And it's dealing with immigration, it's dealing with grief. It is, it, you know, there are tremendously sad roots to the story, but it, it, it does that thing that, that Matt says. It uses humor to, to deepen the tragedy, but also to expand the hope. Uh, it's an incredibly funny book, but, but it de deals with really weighty subjects. And I think, I think you're right, that it, it, it can be used as a tool to really connect with children, but also to, to sort of expand on, on your larger themes. Mm -hmm. And Jim, is it possible for the middle grade market to ever be oversaturated on a particular kind of story or theme or element? I think right now we're dealing with so much oversaturation in the young adult market that we're starting to see a lot of people say they're particularly hungry for middle grade. And as an agent, that makes me very excited and very concerned because typically if you hear the whole industry saying they want something, it means they're about to overbuy and overpublish and well, ooh, sorry about my All right. one second. <laughs> the perils from working from home. He will not stop working for a minute. I apologize for that. That's all right. Uh, can you remind me the question? Yeah, uh, oversaturation of a particular kind of story. Yeah, so right now we have a lot of room to continue <laughs> to continue to publish into it. Uh, I do think it's possible, though we're not there yet, and probably won't be for at least one or two years. 
And Matthew, is there anything that you particularly avoid writing about whenever you, is there anything that you feel like you just don't want to talk about or don't want to include in your stories? No, maybe I should. Um, you know, I think I tend to, I've written a lot of fantasy, so there's obviously something there for me. But other than that, I'm a little bit all over the board and I think it's just where I go. What's interesting to me um, the projects that I've tried that have worked, that have been the least successful, meaning usually they didn't even make it off of my keyboard, um, out of my computer are the ones where I sat down and said, I really should write a book about this, you know? Um, so I generally just go with whatever I know is going to keep me engaged for the length of writing the book. And sometimes that's what I guess people also want to read about in the moment and sometimes it's not. Um, but I just go, yeah, I, I think it's really important that you are, that you choose something that's going to keep you engaged as a writer. And the more engaged you are with the subject matter, the better shot you have of producing something that's going to make people want to read it and make people want to continue, you know, and finish it. Mm -hmm. So I want to look at a couple of recent projects that both of you have had success with, and I want to hear what made this project rise above the pile. Jim, starting with you, uh, the, the book, Paulo Santiago and the River of Tears, I've personally been looking forward to it since back when it sold. It sounds incredible. But I wanted to hear your take on what made that book stand out. Well, <laughs> um, Taylor K. Mejia, who wrote that book, is a really special case. She's someone who queried me for a young adult novel that I ended up turning down three times. And the third time I turned it down, each time I gave editorial feedback, and the third time I turned it down, she said, I'll make these changes, but only if you sign me. Uh, and I signed her. I loved the nerve of it. I realized that if I saw this much in the novel, I had to keep going. Um, and since then, we've sold three, five, eight novels in the past three years. And Paolo Santiago and the River of Tears is with Rick Riordan Presents. Um, it's her middle grade debut. And it's taking um, a myth uh, the myth of La Llorona, the weeping woman, uh, and sort of taking it out of um, only Latinx households or adult horror and retelling it as a children's fantasy story. Um, it has a spectacular voice. It's incredibly funny, very suspenseful. Uh, it's, it's just a special book that, that I think kind of nailed it out of the park on every level. Uh, voice, topic, uh, uh, suspense, pacing. She just got it all right. Um, and it was one of those books that as soon as she started to write it, we, we knew it was special. And, and those don't come along that often. Usually it's a, it's a sort of process of finding it together and, 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 and pacing it out. But, but that one sort of fell onto the page fully formed in a spectacular way. That's a great story. Uh, and Matthew, with you, you recently published uh, Zatanna and the House of Secrets. Same question. What was it about this book? Uh, why this story? Why this format? What made it, what made it happen? Uh, well, it was my first full-length graphic novel, so that was exciting. Um, and that one is different than anything else I'd done because I've been, uh, you know, I've 
published, I think, about eight middle grade novels, but they've all been entirely original concepts. This one, I was working with somebody else's characters. So this is actually produced through DC Comics. And DC uh, has started an initiative over the last couple of years where they have been going to middle grade and YA novelists and said, okay, here's our sandbox of characters, right? Here are our decades and decades and decades and decades worth of characters. What would you do to take these characters and put them into a graphic novel? And I think what's most interesting about it is they're really asking them, asking the writers to not tell a superhero story, to take those characters and tell a traditional middle grade story or a young adult story using those characters, but doing a different thing with them. So like in, in, in the case of Zatanna, um, we age the character down to 13 years old. And also for me, like when I got the opportunity to pitch for them, most people were like, oh, cool, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And I was like, who have, who have the kids never heard of? That's for me. <laughs> so I went to one of their sort of C-list characters, Zatanna, who's uh, this magician who casts spells by speaking backwards and um, has this sort of family legacy of magic. And, when, and to me, that character is just born to be a middle grade. Like it's, she's an adult in the DC universe and the comics and the cartoons and things, but I was like, no, 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 no. She belongs, she needs to be like a 13-year-old girl, right, who learns how to cast spells by speaking backwards. Um, and they liked it, luckily. The DC liked the pitch, and the, the book's been very well-received and seems to be doing well, and I think it's just because it is just a traditional middle grade story with this very cool character. She has a speaking rabbit who's, you know, when I pitched it, I think I said that the rabbit was like Luke Skywalker from The Last Jedi, very grouchy. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a traditional story told with a character that's been around forever, but kids don't know that. To kids, it's just one new magical journey that they can go on. And um, yeah, it's been really fun. And the aspect of writing comics and graphic novels of collaboration of working very closely with an artist and also knowing that what you're bringing to the book and the story is by far not going to be the first thing that people think about you know you're really trusting a collaboration with another hopefully very gifted storyteller in my case it was yoshi yoshitani and she's fantastic um and so that collaboration is really i think what made it the, a special project for me. So Matthew, you brought up character. So I want, I want to segue into talking about that a bit uh, in creating a character that's going to be believable, relatable, authentic. So many things you have to think about for a young audience. What do you start with? What, what's the first thing that comes to life when you create a new character? Um, that's a good question. I think it's, I really think it's, their perspective, sort of where they are in life. Um, I knew that my first novel, Powerless, it was going to be a boy who was going through a family illness. Um, my Pied Piper series, I, I literally just had a line that I'd written in a notebook that said, once upon a time, there was a girl named Max with pink hair. I didn't know anything more than that, but that was sort of situational. And I was like, okay, well, who is this girl named Max? Why does she have pink hair? What did she do? When did she get it? What's she trying to say with getting the pink hair? Like, and from there, the, the, the character starts to grow and build, right? 
So for me, I really think my way into character is um, where that person is in a particular moment in time, what's going on in their life. And then it, then, then it all, all blooms from that point. Jim, who are some of the most memorable middle grade characters you've encountered and what, what made them stand up, stand apart and be so memorable? Oh, wow. Um, I think about Jason Reynolds' track series a lot. It's Ghost, Slow, Sunny, um, and the fourth one that I'm forgetting right now. Um, but he tells uh, the stories of these four individuals on the same track team, and they come so wholly to life because of they're all they're they all share something they're all on this team we see them from each other's perspectives but they're so wholly individual in their voice uh and also just in in how they sort of fit into the world around them what their family looks like uh what their social status is it's it's i i love his I love that series. I love all of his books, but I really love that series because of how incredibly distinctive those four individuals are uh, and how they each become the star of their own story uh, just as well as they fade into secondary status in each other's not in in each other's lives. So staying on the subject of character, Matthew, with the middle, middle grade age range being such a complex time of life for a kid, uh, how do you incorporate such a wide swath of emotion and change into your characters? That's actually tough for me. I, um, I think a lot of the, I think the easiest solution that we tend to go for is, well, we make them 12. <laughs> because we're like, oh, they're 12. They're not quite a kid anymore, but they're not quite an adult. There's a lot going on there. We can deal on both sides. You know, we can, it's two sides of the coin. And I think that there's a reason for that. It is a very uh, important age. It is the age where many cultures uh, start to assume that you're leaving your childhood behind and start moving into adulthood. So there's a lot of real stuff there. There's also just, you know, um, it's kind of a sweet spot marketing wise because kids are aspirational readers. So you're able to get a lot of them in. So in that way, I find it a little limiting. Um, and, you know, I would really, sometimes I just want to tell a story about a nine-year-old, you know, <laughs> and, and people, sometimes you hear like, oh, well, if you write the main character who's nine, you know that the 11, 12-year-olds are not going to read it because they don't want to read about kids that are younger. Uh, I'm not sure about that, if I really believe that conventional wisdom, because my own son reads young and older. Um, so I know I'm getting a little far afield of your question, but um, I think that no matter where you are, no matter how old your characters are, they're going to have very interesting things going on in their life and things that you can mine. And it just, you've got to be true to what's really going on in that character's time. I think the one mistake you can make, not the one, there's many, but one of the big mistakes you can make is write about somebody of a young age and imbue them with a certain wisdom that kids just don't have, you know, a certain ability for self-reflection that kids don't have. Um, so you've got to be mindful of that kind of a thing. But there's always, you know, if you want to write about an eight-year-old, you can come up with an eight-year-old, a story about an eight-year-old that is filled with all the depth that you need. You just have to look for it. 
Jim, what, what kinds of issues do you find most important to the authenticity of a middle grade character? Like what kinds of things do they go through that, that you feel are, play the biggest part in, in them being authentic for their age? <sighs> That's a tough question. Um, I mean, it's not really an issue, but the, the, the hardest thing that I see, I see a lot of people getting the current moment wrong. A lot of people writing for children, but seeming to write about their own childhood. Uh, you know, people who write about children who have no access to a cell phone or a computer because they didn't when they were kids. Um, or people being like, I don't want to deal with, you know, a world where they are always being called by their parents. So I'm just going to set it in 1994. Um, it's, there are a lot of cop-outs. Um, and I think that since we are writing for children today, it's not to say we can't do historical, we can't write in the 90s, we can do all of those things. Um, but, but that has to be done with, with intention. Um, in terms of, of, oh, what are they going through that... <laughs> It's just such a formational time for children that there, there's a flexibility about character. There's a, a sense of discovery of self that I think always needs to be addressed. I think any middle grade novel is in some way a coming of age novel. If that, even if that's not the goal, it's, it, it's the process that they are very literally going through in these ages. So, so I think, you know, their identification with the idea of self, selfhood themselves, I think that's something that everyone writing for the category has to contend with. Mm -hmm. well, that makes sense. Uh, before we jump over to audience questions, I want to get, we've talked about everything except plot. So I want to jump over to plot real quick uh, and talk about your specific uh, takes on it. Uh, Matthew, with with plot, you know, plots have to be compelling, but with middle grade, I feel like they can't be overly complex. How do you strike that balance of making it compelling without making it so intricate? Um, I think that, yeah, no, I agree. And I think there's a level of, you can just get too intricate in plot in general for any audience, but with kids, um, you know, you can throw one red herring too many in there, that kind of thing. Um, I think that I think that like a plot doesn't necessarily have to be super intricate to be compelling. I think the stakes need to be high. For me, um, the problem needs to be big. Uh, there needs to be something that is pushing against the characters and making the characters behave differently than they normally would, right? It's gotta be, um, and to me, that's really plot. I know, you, like when I teach classes, we do talk about formalized structure and things like that. But I really think that at some point you let that stuff go. And to me, plot is really what's the problem and how is that character going to relate to it? And if that problem is interesting, then your plot has the opportunity to be interesting. That's also determined by how the character reacts to it, how they choose to engage with it. You know, how do they try to solve the problem? How do they fail and how do they try again? Um, and I think there's some real joy in really intricate plots, even for kids like mysteries, kids love a mystery. Um, I think the Harry Potter books are the first three, you know, when I read them, I thought, oh, these are really interesting mystery novels, you know, um, even more than magical adventure novels. 
So I think you can get really intricate with the plot, but you also don't have to. You can just have something big that, you know, changes their life and let's see how these people react to it. So, yeah. Jim, what's your take on plot? Is there a such thing as too complex to be marketable for a young audience? Uh, sure, there is. I think you can write as much detail as you want, as long as you're thinking about how it's conveyed. I think how it's written is more important than how much happens. Because um, I just read this book called A Wish in the Dark by Christina Suntorvat, I believe is how you pronounce her last name. And it's a middle grade retelling of Les Miserables, which is, you know, a 900 page adult novel that takes place over 40 years. And it's not a direct retelling, but she squeezes so much of the original into this middle grade novel that is also set in a fantasy world based on Thailand. And, and there's all sorts of light magic that it's, you know, it's one of the most intricately plotted books I've read in a long time, and it happens to be for children. There's never any doubt of, of comprehension, though, because of her use of language and, and how often she sort of returns to certain things that, that, you, that a child will, might need to be reminded of in order to keep track of. Um, but, but that is a book that really uh, reminded me that we don't have to be, we don't have to make things simple for children. We just have to make them um, comprehensible. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Uh, so real quick, before we do audience questions, I just want to get your, your recommendations on a couple titles that every middle grade writer should read or modern, modern middle grade. And yes, you can plug your own books at this point. That's perfectly fine. Just want to hear what you think are the essential middle grade reading these days. We'll start with you, Jim. Oh, oh, I feel like I've named a lot of my recent favorites. Um, I do think the track series by Jason Reynolds is, is one of the best series of contemporary middle grade. Um, I think Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ghost Boys uh, is an unbelievable book. I am incredibly proud of, of Pie in the Sky by Remy Lai and Hurricane Season by Nicole Mellaby, um, which I think do an exceptional job of showing you sort of how far you can push the genre. Um, I'm trying to think of books that aren't mine and suddenly, suddenly drawing a blank. So I'll pause. That's, right. That's perfectly fine. Uh, Matthew, any, any titles to add? Um, yeah, I think that, so I tend to be a big fan of fantasy and fantasy in middle grade, but to look at, so I'll just throw two out there that I think um, one is uh, the Jumbies. Um, Tracy Petit's and the, the sequel to it in a way of looking at fantasy. Um, and uh, I think both of, both of my examples are going to be a bit scary because this one is a book that scares me, <laughs> right? And it's written for kids. But I think it's a really good lesson in writing contemporaneously for children and being able to deal with scary things. Um, I think that we shy away from that a lot. And another book that's not quite as recent, but the series just wrapped up, uh, Jonathan Stroud's um, Lockwood and Co. series, which is five books. The first one is The Screaming Staircase. Also a very scary fantasy story for kids. It's about kids who hunt ghosts. But I think there are lessons in both of those books too, if you're interested in writing fantasy for children. And one of the lessons that both authors do really well is give us protagonists with a lot of agency. Kids who are 
up against very terrifying situations and things that will scare even adults, but that the, the kids are in control. They're very competent, you know? And I think that you can allow kids to be competent, to be good at things. And that's reassuring for, I think, when we see that in a protagonist. We like to see competent protagonists. Then they make mistakes and they do horrible things, you know, inadvertently and stuff like that. But I think that those are both good sort of just structural lessons as to how you can write sort of darker, scary fantasy for kids. That's sort of on my brain right now. Gotcha. So I, I had a whole bunch more questions to ask, but I, I need to jump over to the audience questions now because there are some good ones in here too. So I'm going to pose this question to both of you. I think we'll start with Matthew for this one though. What are your thoughts on pacing in middle grade? Does the inciting event or whatever will launch the main plot need to occur in the first few pages, first chapter? Um, I don't have a hard and fast rule about it, but I do try to go by the idea that get to it as soon as possible. Um, you want to establish the world. I mean, you want, to, you want to establish what the everyday is. You want to establish what the normal is before we disrupt, disrupt that normal. So however long it takes you to do that. But <clears throat> remember that your story for the character really begins with your inciting incident, right? Like when something new happens to them, that's their story. If they're going to sit down and tell what happened to somebody else, they're not going to, if they're going to sit down and say, you're not going to believe what happened to me last week. They're not going to say, okay, but, but first, I'm going to tell you what was going on in my life three weeks ago to set the scene. No, 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 no. You want to get to the story as soon as possible. So I do expect that you're going to at least get hints of what is to come in the first couple of chapters. But I'm also a believer that, you know, you can sprinkle that stuff out. You can add little moments that will pique your reader's interest and show that something is going to go different, that something's going to be different here. Something's going to challenge your characters. Um, you don't necessarily need one giant monolithic inciting incident that's going to rock their world. Mm -hmm. Jim, anything to add about that? Your thought, your your take on pacing? No, I agree. You you, what you need more than anything else is a reason to change to turn the first page. And whether that's an inciting incident that makes you want to keep going, or or a character that immediately leaps to life and you need to get to know them a little bit more, or even if it's just you know beautiful writing or a joke that makes you laugh, you need a reason to stay interested. And, and, and that has to happen on page one, especially with children readers, because they don't think you have very long for, before someone is deciding how much, how much they want to trust you uh, and how much time they want to spend with you as as an author uh, so so yeah try to try to get another page as soon as possible so i want to pose this question to matthew since you mentioned you have a kid who's a really voracious reader would you recommend having kids in your in your life uh, read your stories and assess if it's something <laughs> i no. stopped the question early because you were shaking your head already <laughs> no i remember what i gave my friend I gave my first book, Powerless, to my son to read when I think he was six or seven, which was way too early, apparently, because the first thing he did was give me notes. Like, literally, the kid was giving me notes that were, like, mm, like, like worse than my editor. <laughs> like, and this was, book was published. Um, and then I also just uh, scared him too much, and so he had to come back to my books later. I think that I'm of two minds about kids as your first readers. I think that it's, it is good to have children read your books 
to see what they like. But I think that kids are a really good barometer of like, oh, I love the book. And then that's really all you need to know. Or they didn't love the book. And really, that's all you need to know. And then you need to dig as to why. Because kids, I think, often will love something but not really be able to articulate the true reason why. And they will hate something and not be able to articulate the true reason why. Uh, what I mean by that is like, my son would read a book and be like, oh, no, I didn't like it. And I'd be like, why? And he'd be like, character wasn't super powerful enough. Like, he should have been able to like blow up moons with his eyes. And why could he only lift a single car? And what really is going on is he's not wanting that character to be super, that super strong because that book would be super boring in that case if they could do anything. What he wanted was like a more interesting struggle in that character. But he's not going to be able to articulate that. So, yeah, I don't know. If you don't let, let your kids read your own books, let your partners read your books, but get your feedback from somewhere else. Gotcha. Uh, Jim, I want to direct this question to you. Uh, for somebody who's unsure if their book is YA or middle grade, do you have to, to classify it in your query or will an agent steer you in the right direction? I think you, you have to know what you believe you've written. And the ultimate question is, is who you think you're writing for. Um, if you think you're writing for someone between the ages of 8 and 12 years old, you've written a middle grade. If you think they're between 13 and 18, you've written a young adult. It doesn't always have to do with the age of the protagonist. Because you can, also, you can write an adult novel about a five-year-old, or look at The Lovely Bones, or, or Room. Um, but you have to know who your reader is and and that more than anything else identifies what you're writing mm -hmm. so he, here's an interesting question as well i want to pose it to both of you in this uh, i want to keep social media out of my middle grade novel but don't want to set the book back before social media became the norm give me advice for that matthew i want to start with you because from what I've read of you, there isn't a big social media presence. So do you have any advice for keeping social media out despite it being so prevalent today? Page one, they get grounded from social media. <laughs> uh, no, uh, or they go into a dead zone. <laughs> Can't get a signal. Um, no, I think to be honest with you, the reason that I haven't engaged strongly with social media, well, when I started writing, it wasn't as big of a presence in kids' lives. It's a weighty topic. And it's a thorny issue. Um, and just personally, when I want to engage with it, and I'm sure I will, I want to make sure that I have the right story that I want to tell about it. Um, so it is something that I have avoided very, very consciously, being writing something that is fantastical, set in a place where there is no such thing, or historical. Uh, but I agree, I agree with Jim when he was saying earlier that it is a reality of kids' lives. So if you are going to write about the things that kids deal with now, it's impossible to ignore it. Um, so what do you want to do? You know, do you want to write um, big sweeping fantasy, fantasy epics for kids? You don't need to worry about social media probably, right? You can do that and do your thing. You want to write strictly historical fiction like Avi or something? And fine, you can do that. But if you want to write contemporary stories for children, you are probably going to have to engage with it at some point. So just tell the, whoever asked that question to let me know when they find the right way to do it. <laughs> use that. Pretty comprehensive answer, but Jim, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's exactly it. Gotcha. So here's a question that is particularly relevant in modern times. 
I'm wondering about what the panelists think about writers writing characters who do not share their background, race, gender identity, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. Uh, Jim, how would you recommend approaching that? I think now more than ever, <laughs> this feels like a separate one to 12 hours of, <laughs> of class. Um, I think more than ever before, the entire publishing industry needs to confront uh, its own makeup, uh, its own biases, and questions of who is responsible for telling what stories and who's allowed to tell what stories. Um, I never want to tell anybody, particularly any marginalized person, that they can't write a particular story, a specific story. Um, that said, I believe we need to try overall to allow for individual populations to write their own stories before other groups start trying to, to jump in and, and, and tell another group's story. Um, black writers deserve the chance to tell black stories before white writers or Asian writers do. I, I, and I think that that's a question that you need to be asking yourself as authors. We need to be asking ourselves as, as agents, editors, publishers, marketers. Um, it's, I, I don't have a short answer and I don't have a right answer. Um, I just have uh, a lot of hope that overall we do better. Um, and certainly I would not say, I would tell anybody that their book should have a of characters it shouldn't you know not writing somebody else's story doesn't mean all of your characters need to look act and 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 sound like you uh when it comes to to that i think it's a question of writing sensitively making sure that you have readers who uh who look like the characters in your book look um and and writing with intention mm -hmm. so with just one minute left i want to jump to our our customary last question which is just what if you could give one piece of advice to middle grade writers what would it be matthew we'll start with you um wow one piece of advice um read a lot of middle grade before you start writing it um i do think i think jim mentioned that earlier you need to be you need to really know what it is you're writing and i do one of the things that i encounter the most when i'm writing a any class about writing for, for children is how many adults come back and they think, I want to write this book because I loved books like this when I was eight. And I remember this was my favorite book. So I'm going to write a book like that. And that's great. And that book's still on the shelf. But that's the point. That book is on the shelf. We don't need that book again. The kids are different now. And you need to see what people are doing and what people are writing and how you know, books are a conversation. And if you're not reading current books and you're not immersing yourself in the genre you want to write in, you're not engaged in the conversation. So you're going to say something stupid. So get in there and, and read. Gotcha. Jim, your advice. No, oh, I mean, <laughs> I'll go for a niche answer and say, if you can figure out how to write social media, if you can figure out how to tell an authentic story that children will, children of today will recognize themselves in, send it to me. Uh, because I, I, I want something that feels authentic more than, than anything else. Um, and I would also say, always think about your characters first in terms of how they relate 
uh, to the world around them. I, I, I like to see people who are not just characters who are not just well-developed, but who are surrounded by other well-developed people. Um, so, so focus on character development uh, globally, not just in terms of your protagonist. Mm -hmm. Great advice from both of you. Uh, so this is the point in the show where I bid you both farewell, Matthew and Jim. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a wonderful discussion. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Appreciate Absolutely. It. All right. For everybody that wants to get involved after this show, I'm going to share real quick the uh, instructions for our Twitter pitch party. So let me pull that up right here. All right. So. As always, after the show, from now until Friday at, uh, at midnight, you have the chance to pitch your own middle grade book. And, and the pitches, I'll collect the pitches on Twitter and send them off to Jim for feedback. So a couple of quick tips, and you can reference this on the Gotham blog as well. Uh, first off, make sure you condense your book pitch into a single tweet. Multiple tweet pitches are not allowed. And if you have more than one book to pitch, you may pitch them all just separate tweets for each. Also, make sure you come up with a good comparable title or two. Uh, it's just a really good way to, to quickly summarize what your book is about. Focus on what makes your book unique. Usually, that's the protagonist and the main drive of the plot. And lastly, end with a hook, something enticing to leave the agent wanting more. You don't have to convey your entire story in a tweet. You just want to make sure that you introduce the concept and hook it at the end. Lastly, make sure you include the hashtag P-I-T-G-O-T-H-A-M. Make sure that's in your tweet. You don't have to tag anybody. Just make sure you leave room to include that hashtag. Otherwise, I will not be able to find it. All right, so I'm going to leave that up as I tell you what's coming up next. So tomorrow we have a special episode of Inside Writing. It's about diversity and publishing. It's going to be at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Registration is still open on the Gotham website's Inside Writing page, so you can sign up there. Also, next Wednesday, uh, we're going to be talking about science fiction and fantasy. So that's going to be at the same time, 1 p.m. Eastern time. Registration's open for that as well. And that's all I have for today. That was our discussion on middle grade. If you, if you missed part of the show or just want to see it again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we record all of our episodes, and they will be up on our YouTube channel as well as on the Inside Writing page on the Gotham website. So. Until next time, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.